This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? Be? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who is sick and tired of hearing all about Alexander Hamilton, and I demand a new Broadway show musical about the life of Peyton Randolph. Oh, that's a joke. He was the, apparently the president of the Continental Congress, and Eric... It really lost his mind. But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter, and you're listening to Rico Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. But today in the red chair, we have Alexis Coe, the best selling author of You'll Never Forget Your First Biography, which is the single best uh, title, the biography of George Washington. Even though George Washington remains a very popular and written about figure in American history, Alexis argues in the book that there's a lot about the man we didn't remember, or we don't remember. She previously wrote an award-winning narrative history book called Alice and Frida Forever about a teenage murderer in the 1890s, Tennessee, whose story captivated America. Alexis, welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you for having me. I love me. history books. Oh, great. I love the history books. So you write historical books. Talk about why you do that. Why did that spark your interest? I'm a political historian. It was what I emphasized in graduate school. And then I left and I worked at the New York Public Library. Mm -hmm. And I started to think about different ways. What did we, you do there? What did I was a research curator in the exhibitions department. And what does that mean? Um, it means that oh, it was the best. I spent basically two years working on exhibitions. One year, almost completely alone, just going into the special collections, you know, behind the locked doors and looking at everything in a day from, you know, cuneiforms to E.E. E. Cummings notes to his Life, to um, Virginia Woolf's walking stick. It was incredible. And um, through that, I started to think about how we tell our stories, how we communicate history. And I got a front row seat to my viewer, which mm -hmm. you never get as a historian when you're just writing something. I would see people walk through the exhibition halls in Bryant Park and notice what they lingered on, what didn't capture their attention at all. Mm -hmm. And it really influenced the way I would compose the text that was on the wall and, and the exhibition catalogs. And eventually I just sort of— It's usually they're dull as can be, a lot like, of exhibitions. You know, if history is boring, it's the historian's fault. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of guilty historians out there. And, and, and a lot of ways—we're going to get into online. I do want to talk about online because I just did a podcast with someone who was talking about the no need for no need for libraries anymore. And so— No, disagree. Tell, tell me why. Well, first of all, there are two kinds of libraries. There are research libraries, which house our collective memory. So, right. you know, we have letters from George Washington, for example. Mm -hmm. We have to preserve those things. Right, right. Not but only they can also be digitized for use, but go ahead. They can, but when you interact with it, it's just completely different. Right, right. Um, and, and, you know, you can't handle certain things that are quite old, but it means something for people to see it and to interact with it. It's really mm -hmm. important. 
And it's also where researchers communicate with experts, curators, archivists, librarians. And without that fundamental relationship, so many misunderstandings will come from the text. Um, and, and people won't see everything that they're supposed to see. It just it isolates everyone in a way that will be really unhelpful to scholarship. Mm-hmm. And then libraries themselves are essential to communities. Mm-hmm. Um, people use them when they can't afford books. Um, we still want people to read books because the experience is different. The learning experience is different. Um, you can browse uh, stacks the way you just can't digitally. Mm-hmm. It's not the same I haven't done that in years. Thing. Oh, I love it. I'm, I know I did. I just haven't done it in years. It's how I, I mean, see. I haven't used an anal- a phone sitting on a table in years, but, you know. And that's the thing. It, it sort of reinvigorates us in a different way. We, we spend so much time on our phones. Um, and then I think about the different uses that a community has for a library. Children go to story time. Otherwise, in, in Park Slope, you know, story time's like $20. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. They offer help with uh, resumes. Like, they're a, it's a community service. And mm-hmm. so I think libraries on, on every level are fundamental to our society. So great. Good. I'm so glad you did that because I had all these library people. I will get someone to talk about libraries and why they're important. So talk a little bit about why you decided to do this book. You know, I love, I do love, I'm going to read Alice and Frida Ferrer because I love old murders that everyone in the United States talked about that are totally forgotten. And the only one that sort of survived is Lizzie Borden. And there's a new book on that. And there's a movie coming out. That one seemed to have lasted over time. But there were so many incidents of scandal and it will happen to our current scandals, whatever they are. People, it will be forgotten. But I love the idea of, of reviving something that captivated the country for a long time and is totally forgotten. Um, with Alice and Frida, it was interesting. I found their names in an academic text when I was in graduate mm-hmm. school. But at the time, I really thought I wanted to stay in academia. And you can't study love, um, mm-hmm. anything that can be interpreted as love and, mm-hmm. and be taken seriously as a woman in this profession. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of put it um, to the side. And then I tried to talk everyone I knew into writing a book on it. I proposed an exhibition at the library. It didn't work. Mm-hmm. But the reason I, it was so important to me was that when I read about the case— in 1892, Alice Mitchell, who was 19, murdered her same-sex fiancé, mm-hmm. Frederica Ward, who was 17. And she, um, they had a plan to get married. And this is 40 years before the word lesbian even emerges. Mm-hmm. And so they didn't have words for what they felt. Um, they exchanged love letters. It was incredible. But when I read the medical literature on it, which was the only thing I could really find besides sort of like general, um, you know, sort of talk about identity politics at the turn of the century, you know, things that you can't really like connect with as, mm-hmm. a, as someone outside of academia and even inside But the thing was, when I read about the case, the medical literature blew my mind because it seemed to me that this was the origin case for the idea that same-sex love is perverse Mm -hmm. because these were the first people who wrote about it. These were the first doctors in America who dealt with it, sexologists as they were called at the time. And then it seemed very clear that, yes, this was in fact this story. And it dominated the front page of every newspaper Mm -hmm. for six months. And the reason was no one had ever heard of anything like this. Well, they had, but they hadn't. They right. had and they hadn't, right? right. Um, and certainly not in the South. And um, it, it was a— and It was not spoken of. No, but the, but she wasn't—so this murder, Alice killed F- Frederica in broad daylight. There, It was um, an agreed-upon— uh, you know, they had a pact. There were letters confirming it. She confessed. There were witnesses, and she wasn't tried. They had a pact. The girls had a pact that if they weren't able to get married, that they would, you know, commit suicide. The sort of a Romeo and Juliet thing. Mm-hmm. But 
Frederica ended up moving on very quickly, and Alice um, slowly, she definitely had some sort of major depressive episode. But despite all of this, despite admitting it, she wasn't tried for murder. She was tried for insanity because she said that the reason she did this, her motivation was because she loved her and wanted to marry her. Mm-hmm. Um, and the and this went on for six months. It was a huge story. And then the day that Alice, of course, is found guilty and mm-hmm. insane and, and sent to an asylum, which is what they did with women then, mm-hmm. um, Lizzie Borden takes an act to her dad and stepmother. And everyone basically hops on the train and goes yeah, to Boston. Yeah. And that story dominated and stayed in our collective memory and erased Alice and Frida's because it was so much more palatable. Mm-hmm. Um, she did not admit to being guilty. Mm-hmm. She was a well-to-do young woman who had, you know, no sexual relationship or romantic relationship with anyone, let alone, that we know of. It's been sort of made into something lately, which historians think is not true. Which is gay. That's really Yeah. Um, and that, that well, it's, they're also implicating a maid that that mm-hmm. seems to be quite innocent. So it's it's really about you know respecting these people's lives after. Um, and so uh, that's what happens. So they are connected. Yeah. But this idea that stuff gets lost, history gets lost, and that's why I want Absolutely. to go into this is that these were massive stories at the time. And again, there will be stories today that we will not. You know, maybe OJ will survive, but not the, all the other murders we've been captivated by, or political things or mm-hmm. whatever. So talk about this George Washington now. Talk about someone who's been written about a lot. This yeah. is written about documentaries. There's now, there's like dozens and dozens and dozens of things about George Washington. There are not that many documentaries. There are hundreds there's of books. Yes, hundreds I, yeah, of books. I, did, I made that documentary. Yeah, that was yours? This yeah, was, okay. I produced it and I was in it. Um, and so I'm a political historian. I mm-hmm. love presidential history. And I used to have a podcast called Presidents Are People Too at Audible. Mm-hmm. When I read presidential biographies, I usually read two, three, four in conversation mm-hmm. because at the end I have a really well-rounded view yeah, of – right, because people have different approaches. Right. Not with Washington. Mm-hmm. They always approached it the same way. They they would at the beginning declare him too marble to be real mm-hmm. and then they would humbly endeavor to break him out of it. Mm-hmm. He would have one black man by his side even though he – he owned hundreds of people. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, he would have this beautiful redemption story where he would emancipate his enslaved mm-hmm. community. Mm-hmm. And, you know, along the way, he he overcame this shrewish mother to seize his destiny. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was almost as if they had taken this pact, like we would proceed in the exact same manner. Mm-hmm. And what it just seemed off to me. I'd never mm-hmm. seen anything like that. I'd never seen mm-hmm. all historians basically agree on something. Right. Um, it seemed to me there was a male skew. Mm-hmm. This obsession with masculinity was odd Tall, to me. He was big. He was sure, but and his manly. body was amazing. But like they for what it could do. Mm-hmm. But they would spend pages and pages of these doorstops, these books that were so huge. Like, basically just genuflecting in his direction. Mm-hmm. And that seemed to me odd because it didn't get us any closer to him. It didn't right. tell you really much about it. Mm-hmm. And it just seemed so reverent. Like, it was really so worshipful. why is that? Why is it? This turns so, to be a pretty fantastic person of his yeah. era, for one. And so, and secondly, he's the first president of the United States. Mm-hmm. And there's all these mythologies that have grown up around him. Yeah. Most of them not true. Right. Um, and so the the thing was, I knew there was a male skew, but I didn't quite realize until, you know, years into the project. I moved all my books around. It has been completely Mm male-dominated. Biographers have been not only men but white men Mm -hmm. and white men of a certain background, East Coast, mostly Virginia, the South. um, Mm -hmm. They have worked on founding era. They they have all these stories about visiting these sites when they were younger and they really impacted Mm -hmm. them and influenced them. Um, And there I am the third woman in 100 years. If you want to specify an historian, I'm Mm -hmm. the only woman. 
And the problem with that is when you exclude women and people of color, Mm -hmm. you don't get the full story because Mm -hmm. you don't, especially when everyone is going in the same direction all Mm -hmm. the time, it's really obvious, we don't see things. And what, whenever women or people of color do enter a, a presidential genre, because this has happened most most famously and recently with Annette Gordon-Reed and mm-hmm. Thomas Jefferson, mm-hmm. they very quickly show us you don't we don't know what we think we know. Mm-hmm. And I realized that that had happened here. But I want and I wanted when I went into the archives and I sort of checked these repetitive themes and mm-hmm. perspectives, they didn't check out. Mm-hmm. And so I basically decided, okay, I, I'm going to enter this crowded bookshelf. I'm going to be one of the first women to do so. And I also am going to sort of tear down everything that I dislike about presidential biographies, which Mm -hmm. is that they don't appeal to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. They are really big. They do have to go with this like lofty language and this Mm -hmm. idealization of the man. Mm -hmm. And I just sort of decided to all right, so it. so we're going to go to a break in a second. But first, t- tell me what. So what? Where did you start then? You already ha- we have all this biography of him, mm-hmm. ton of it. Talk about where you start then. I started with um, his early life and the presentation. Um, one of the first things I realized was they all had this terrible perspective about his mother. Mm-hmm. She seemed just awful. Mm-hmm. So as a historian, I, I looked at their end notes and I went into mm-hmm. the archives and I checked what they said about her versus what I found, and it was so. Here's how dramatic it was. Say her name, please. Mary Washington. Mm -hmm. And here's how dramatic it was. Um, They call her all kinds of names, crusty, you know, things Mm -hmm. that, like, I would never call a subject at all. Mm -hmm. Um, But they also call her illiterate pretty consistently. Mm -hmm. And what is really odd about that is we have in the archives, in these research libraries that we Mm -hmm. need to preserve, Mm -hmm. um, letters written in her hand. Mm -hmm. We have her family talking about when she reads the Bible out loud, um, what she does on a Sunday when she tells them stories. Sometimes she reads from, you know, these books. Mm -hmm. So that seemed to me pretty consistent. She could read. She Mm -hmm. was literate. Um, And when someone calls someone illiterate, it's, it's, it's not always um, literal in that way. It mm-hmm. is meant to degrade and denigrate but someone. She was uneducated. Yeah, probably. she was uneducated. She was lesser than, and it fit into this this theme of of oppression. Like a woman oppresses him, and he 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 overcomes her. Um, and it also denied her this. It, so I found her to be at odds in a lot of way with their you know deductions of her. But it it, it also seemed odd to me then that they inflate. He has a half-brother named Lawrence, and they make it seem like he was always going to his house and always, like, trying to escape, and that wasn't really true. And as if Mary didn't struggle for her children and work really hard to provide and protect them Mm -hmm. and keep them safe and actually helped Washington get ahead. Mm -hmm. And so I really wanted to recast this story the same way I wanted we, us to think about Washington in this way that we think about Obama, Clinton, Ford, mm-hmm. Andrew Jackson, Jefferson even. Mm-hmm. They were raised by single mothers. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why we don't say that about Washington. Mm-hmm. And what it, what was she like from your research? She was a tough woman. She was born to an indentured servant. It's a great American story. Mm-hmm. Born to an indentured servant. She was orphaned, um, you know, around 12 or 13. She um, very quickly is sued by her late family's overseer. She has to give money that she'll never make back because she's a young girl in early mm-hmm. America. She ends up marrying an older man who already has children, Augustine Washington, Washington's father. And she is, it seems, happy and comfortable for a while. And then he dies and she's got you know, four kids that she Mm -hmm. has to raise on her own. She makes the decision not to remarry 
to protect the children. And she tries to do things that are uncommon. She appears before judges arguing that, you know, they should get a better deal for their tobacco that they're sending to London. She's actually making a lot of the same complaints her son will make a couple decades later. Mm -hmm. But because it's a woman, you know, she is considered basically an annoying person, Mm -hmm. you know, that she is difficult. Um, People even say feisty. Mm -hmm. Later, they will describe Washington doing the same things, and and they will talk about it as, like, a a really wonderful— Yeah, exactly. And their relationship. Their relationship was like any other—any parent and child. Sometimes he seems really annoyed with her, and other times he's not. Sometimes he's a good son— and other times he's really negligent. Mm-hmm. It it just seems like any if you took five different exchanges that I had with my mother, it would look mm-hmm. pretty similar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and this is because this is the sources that we don't go. They, that they, these sources, yeah, they don't either don't use them or they misinterpret them or willfully misinterpret them. Yeah, I mean, I think there's just there there isn't a lot of curiosity outside of this sort of obsession with masculinity or, like, military battles or, or these mm-hmm. other things, they also, they sort of make things up. Like, they repeat the stories, and if you look at their end notes, if they're not citing a letter, which they've just, like, barely read, or they're citing someone else, or in, in Ron Chernow's case, he cites himself a lot. Mm-hmm. And so they're not even going to the primary source of the Great and the Second. So, like, one thing that's often repeated is that she really embarrassed Washington during the war mm-hmm. by writing to the Virginia Assembly and asking for a pension. Mm-hmm. What they leave out is that the Virginia Assembly was giving out pensions to old people, um, older people who were suffering. There was real deprivation. The war went on for eight years. Mm-hmm. And um, Jefferson was sent running back to Monticello from Richmond. The British had invaded. They got closer mm-hmm. to Mary Washington than they did George Washington often. Mm-hmm. And she was struggling. She kept writing these letters to Washington and um, his, you know, the manager he'd put in charge. And um, the thing was, they had heard that she was struggling along with all these older people. And, of course, they were concerned about her because she would be, you know, she would be an advantageous get for the British. They Mm -hmm. had, um, there were rumors that that the British were going to kidnap Martha Washington, Washington's wife. Mm -hmm. So it was not, you know, out of the realm of possibility that they would come and get her. Anyway, so they decide to take it upon themselves to, you know, offer her a pension. They write to Washington and they say, you know, we understand your mother is struggling. We're going to give her money. Washington doesn't write to his mother. He writes to them and says, she's fine. You know, I, I provide for her. I bought her house. This is, you know, it, it, she's she's never comfortable because she was raised to be un, in an uncomfortable situation because of her, mm-hmm. you know, difficult childhood. She never wrote the letter. She never wrote a letter. And not only that, Hmm. he later, after she dies, this is something they just completely don't include because after Mary's dead, she's dead, right? She has no impact on Washington. It doesn't matter. That's not true. He's still resolving her estate and doing things after her death. Um, And one of the things that he realizes that her estate had been totally mismanaged by the person he put in charge and that he regrets, um, you know, sort of dismissing her claims so easily. Right. They leave that out. Why? I don't know. It's okay to describe Washington as sometimes being negligent, as being too busy fighting the revolution, to care necessarily about his mother's difficulty and to feel like, well, my sister lives next door. I have a brother nearby. They should be taking care of it when he was the eldest and he was sort of it's like— It's also a very common thing a lot of people have in their families. They don't want to treat him as common. Yes. Um, we're going to talk about that when we get back. We're here with Alexis Coe. She's the author of You'll Never Forget Your First, a biography of George Washington. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before— 
Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. We're here with Alexis Coe. She is a historian and the author of a book about George Washington called You'll Never Forget Your First. Talk about that idea of ma- having to make him uncommon. Even fast forward today, I think people do that with tech leaders, with business leaders. You know, you know, Mark Zuckerberg was hung the moon until he didn't. Steve Jobs, you know, or Bill Gates or any of them. Um, before that, Leah Iacocca, others. Mm-hmm. There's this idea of having to make these always men. It's never women because women tend to get the short end, like Cleopatra, who was a fascinating leader. The short end of the stick. Women tend to be flawed men. You have to sort of make them into these giants um, when they're complex people. So talk about that, the idea of the complexity around George Washington. What other things were not quite as easy? You know, I think that there is this duality to these kinds of people. To speak to the examples that you you stated, it's really interesting where they are exceptional, right? They, they do mm-hmm. exceptional things. All of the people I mentioned are exceptional, yeah. But— there's this belief that they were always destined to be exceptional. And this the odd and and because of that, then we can make them into these perfect people. And instead of treating them like significant individuals in all in either modern or um, you know, distant history, we we treat them like role models. Mm-hmm. And that's a personal choice that we should not project onto other people. The other thing is is that, um, by doing this, what what strikes me as odd is by saying that someone was destined to do something that they were always great, we really deny them the incredible hard work it takes to be successful. Mm-hmm. And we see so much of that um, in Washington. We see him, you know, overcome. And, and everyone does talk about this, to be fair, that he had a bad temper that he overcame and sort of hit it better, you know, later on. Mm-hmm. There are certain things they do allow him if, if, you know, he's not in any way sort of offending or wronging someone who might be in a more vulnerable position than mm-hmm. him. But I'm not quite sure. It's, it's it's that they want him to have been just on his way from the very beginning, and they want him to have been aspiring to be better and greater. And a way to do that is to take him out of this home with this woman who came from, you know, fairly humble circumstances, and to have him always trying to get towards his half-brother who got all the advantages he was denied and married well into a loyalist family, and to be, like, trying hard to live that life, which he was. But he was trying to also just get stability for his entire family as, Mm -hmm. like, a Mm 14-year-old. 
So talk a little bit about his, his that life and the movement towards that and how we get that vision of him being extraordinary at every moment. Washington, you know, was frustrated because he was the eldest child of the second marriage, um, which meant that when his father died, his mother got very little mm-hmm. and he got very little. That means that his two older brothers had been educated in London. So they were wealthy, but not, you know, mansion mm-hmm. wealthy, but mm-hmm. but up-and-coming planter wealthy. Washington had to drop out of school at 14. Mm -hmm. He said that he couldn't afford to feed his horse Mm -hmm. to travel. In Virginia, if you couldn't afford to feed your horse, you were dirt poor and looked down upon. Right. So Washington, essentially, at this age, he's he's done with school. He's the head of his household. He's got younger siblings. He's got to basically be his his mother's, you know, man Mm -hmm. at this point to represent her. And Lawrence Washington, his his brother, gives him certain advantages. But Washington is frustrated by the way people look at him as this, you know, second son, as someone who doesn't have any advantages except this slight connection to a half-brother. Mm-hmm. And he starts to demand things. So he mm-hmm. fights for, ironically, the British Army. Mm-hmm. And his dream was to simply get ahead there. Mm-hmm. Had they just given him the promotion that he wanted, we might all be British subjects. Mm-hmm. So he he— this is this is how ridiculous he is. He goes out on a fact-finding mission. This is one of his his early jobs for mm-hmm. for the Virginia governor, the royal governor, placed by the crown, placed by parliament. And he is just supposed to figure out because, of course, America is everyone's after America. You've got the the British, the French, the, mm-hmm. the Spanish. He's just trying to figure out if the French have built forts mm-hmm. um, in the forks of the Ohio, so right. just on land that that the English have claimed. So, so he just has to go out there. He see. just has to go just see, just see what's going on. Mm-hmm. Fast forward, a he and the Indians who have, you know, who basically have helped him find the, the location of the French camp. It all goes awry. They end up attacking in the early morning hours, sort of on bad information, sort of just Washington being trigger happy. Mm-hmm. And um, he is party. He's in charge of the party that assassinates a diplomat, mm-hmm. a French diplomat, and that ends up sparking a world war, mm-hmm. the French and Indian War, um, or as it's known abroad, the Seven Years of War. Mm-hmm. And that is a huge thing mm-hmm. because of this international incident. We go to war, but. He's so mad about not getting paid as much as British soldiers, about treating, you know, being treated like a second-class mm-hmm. citizen, that when he writes a, a letter to the Virginia governor, Dinwiddie, he spends three pages complaining about how he barely had his expenses borne, that, you know, the frustrations, how it really doesn't—it's not a good look. He can't really give orders if, mm-hmm. if a British soldier knows that he's being paid less. And then he gets to the assassination. Mm-hmm. It takes pages. Mm-hmm. And that is really incredible. Like that, he as a young man is quite, he's service-oriented, but he's Washington-oriented first. Mm-hmm. That is a struggle he deals with until he basically finds his retirement plan out of the army, which is Martha Custis, who becomes mm-hmm. Martha Washington. She's a rich widow. She is not the first rich young woman he wanted. Mm -hmm. He was basically going for any rich young woman who would give him the time of day. I do Mm -hmm. really believe that they fell in love. Mm -hmm. But he, you know, marries her again with this idea, okay, the British Army didn't work out. They wouldn't give me equal treatment. So I am going to become a gentleman farmer. But— and he, and he runs for this Virginia Assembly, uh, the British Virginia Assembly, and he finds himself up against all these walls. He can't sell at a decent rate to London. He's mm-hmm. being charged, overcharged for shoddy goods. He he complains that things are like 
hose of yore. Like, mm-hmm. nothing, he, you know, the stamp act passes. If he signs a piece of paper, he's being taxed for it. All these guys, Jefferson, Washington, they have plantations. They have some money. They're rich guys. They're not like Thomas Paine, sort of in the street, mm-hmm. protesting, mm-hmm. revolution hopping from all over the world. They are not the people you think will rebel. But over time, they're they're sort of forced to in their minds because they're ironically complaining about being treated like slaves. Right. Um, of course, they are enslaving. And it's worth noting that at the time, um, the English, of course, are involved in the slave trade but have outlawed slavery in London. Mm-hmm. And that is certainly starting to panic, they, you know, Virginians right. in particular. You know, that was interesting because a lot of people were— the, the, the 1619 uh, Project was assuming that, that this was the revolution happened because of slavery, which I think has been a controversy. Some historians have disagreed with that premise. Um, but nonetheless, the, the irony of this is so— uh, is, It's connected, it, connected clearly. Right. I think the, the problem with the, um, the 1619 Project is an incredible this is endeavor. The New York Times product, yes, yeah. it's incredible. It's not perfect. Mm-hmm. It's not perfect. It leaves out the Indian component of the story, which is really important, and I hope that someone else takes that on. Mm-hmm. Um, there are all sorts of issues, but, but you cannot deny that that was— a part of their thinking. It's right. absurd to think that it wasn't. So, so, but here he vaunts himself into history by being the leader of the, the military leader. Talk about yeah. a little bit about that happening. So, there weren't a ton of people to lead this fight. Mm-hmm. Washington had become famous from his early endeavors from starting a world war. His journal was published. Mm-hmm. He was well known in Virginia for marrying Martha Custis. Mm-hmm. Um, becomes increasingly wealthy. Becomes he's good at very, running this plantation. Yes, with a forced labor camp. Mm-hmm. And he's good at running it because he, he in this marriage, got hundreds of Slaves. people to work it yeah. and then yep. bought more right. um, with that capital. And he still thinks of himself as a military man because that is status. And mm-hmm. he does still like status. So mm-hmm. a couple, you know, before the—even before we rebel, before the Declaration of Independence, Martha commissions a painting— And um, instead of wearing the clothes that he wears every day, which is, you know, finery from London, he stuffs himself in his old uniform Mm -hmm. from his late 20s. You know, he's Mm -hmm. middle-aged by now. And he poses in it because that's how he thinks of himself. And he even when he retires, he says, I'm very much bent to arms. So he goes to Philadelphia to meet with all these other men, John Adams. The first time he's meeting with a lot of these people from New England. Mm -hmm. And he— says, you know, he's just going as a delegate. He He's tired of writing letters, but, you know, he wants to fight, but he's not sure what position he's going to have yet. He shows up in a uniform. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty clear what mm-hmm. position he wants. Right. And he goes to every single church. He goes to every home. He's basically running for general. Mm-hmm. And there's there's not a lot of competition. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's behind. He's He's reading all these books. We know how the story ends. He's successful in part because he stayed the course. I have um, in the book, I wanted to tell the story for people who needed to look at Washington's story in a different way. So who knew the story, but also people who who had never read presidential biographies and weren't Mm -hmm. totally familiar with the founding era. So I have all these charts and graphs that I I interspersed to make you feel like the expert, like you Mm -hmm. know what's going on. And one of the things I point out is that, you know, I go through the years and I say like, this was the general for America. It's Washington's name over and over again. And then and there are so many generals for the British. So, mm-hmm. so part of it was just that he was stable. Right. But at the end of it, he is completely satisfied. He is mm-hmm. the biggest celebrity in the world. Mm-hmm. And the way that early aggressiveness that we mm-hmm. see does somewhat change. Mm-hmm. 
Um, he's no longer out to prove things in that way. He's very careful mm-hmm. about how he, what he says in letters, how he conducts himself. You, mm-hmm. you never see another letter like that Dinwiddie letter. Mm-hmm. In which he is a person. Yes. So, I mean, and that's the thing. He, he did keep people from him, but it's there if you're not, you know, if you're only interested in military battles or his letters to Hamilton mm-hmm. or whatever, you're only going to see one person. But if you're interested in the whole story, you're going to see a lot of different things. All right. So at this point, he's head of the effort. He yeah. has Hamilton as his closest aide. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah. He has, he has that relationship was critical, though. S- a variety of superstars who who we don't quite know as well, who were in Hamilton's position, you know, mm-hmm. before the musical. Um, <laughs> Henry Locke, Knox, um, yeah. a guy named Henry Lawrence, who mm-hmm. uh, Hamilton has been rumored to have a romantic relationship mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, the, Marquis, the Marquis de Lafayette, made famous right. by Hamilton, was mm-hmm. um, Washington loved him, mm-hmm. which is really interesting because they didn't have a lot in common and they didn't agree all, on a lot politically. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, he's surrounded by all these these men. He likes to surround himself with men who give him good information. Once mm-hmm. in a while, a woman like Elizabeth Powell, who runs these political salons in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And this is why later on, by the way, he invents the cabinet. The mm-hmm. cabinet does not exist in the Constitution. Mm-hmm. He wants everyone's opinion. The problem is he considers himself sort of a general, and so mm-hmm. it doesn't quite work later on with the cabinet. But he has their input, and he, he you so know, makes changes. what changed him? I mean, what kind of person was he? Because I think one of the things that gets lost in a lot of the—, the is that he's he managed to do— the right thing at the right moment, I guess, is what like Often. such as his at a critical moment, such as the the when he was leaving the farewell to Congress. Yes, like mm-hmm. so he makes good choices at critical moments. But there's there's a backstory, right? To exactly. That. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that. The concept of him yeah. as a man. People conflate him giving up power at the end of the war as um, him leaving office after eight years. Right. At the end of the war, he's been away from Mount Vernon for eight years. It's fallen into disrepair. Mm-hmm. His business, the way he makes mm-hmm. money. Um, he is tired of being away. He's tired of being uncomfortable. He's basically, mm-hmm. been, you know, camping and also taking over mm-hmm. other people's houses for a mm-hmm. long time. He wants to be home. And so he he very happily gives up power. Mm-hmm. It is an amazing thing because of the era he lived in. Mm-hmm. Um, Napoleon isn't that far into the future. He lives in an age of monarchs. People don't give up power, especially mm-hmm. when he— You've had the most unlikely of wins against mm-hmm. one of the greatest superpower in the world. Mm-hmm. So he goes back to Mount Vernon. Everyone sort of assumes after he goes to the Constitutional Convention that he's going to take over, um, that he will be the president. And they they sort of figure out a lot about it. But because they have him in mind and know that he has this self-control, mm-hmm. they don't figure everything out. And they basically talk him into it. There's a, there's a serious campaign across all the founders to get him to be president. Mm-hmm. And to a certain extent, it's not quite like him showing up in a uniform. He's not eager to do it. But he is sort of like, I don't know, you know, he's very flattered by them thinking he's the only man for the job. But he's quite right in thinking that um, he's going to his, he calls it to his execution. Mm -hmm. He has everything to lose. He's mm-hmm. sort of considered a saint in the world. Right. And he does. First term, everything is fine, but, you know, he he's created this cabinet, and Hamilton and Jefferson are fighting a lot. Mm-hmm. Jefferson sort of second Madison, you know, got along with Hamilton during the Federalist Papers, but after, you know, right. it's one thing to, to fight a war and mm-hmm. to try and birth a mm-hmm. nation. It's another thing to actually run it. Mm-hmm. Um, so fourth trimester is pretty difficult. Mm-hmm. And... It becomes so nasty. So half his cabinet leaves. He had diversity of opinions. He didn't declare a political party, but um, he knew that people weren't aligned. Mm -hmm. Jefferson and Hamilton, of course, start their own. And it becomes a partisan nightmare. So his greatest fear, he ends up sort of enabling by, by, as Jefferson would later 
call it, you know, he would he would describe these cabinet meetings like cockfights. Mm-hmm. And Washington is sort of like presiding over them, telling them to fight. They're razor beak. They're like bloodied. Mm-hmm. This fight spills out. The whole country becomes partisan. Lots of things going on. And Jefferson quits. He's Washington the yeah. second term, only surrounded by people who agree with him. Hamilton. Very, very. And even Hamilton has gone to New York. He's still handling things weirdly. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, he had a lot of energy. But Washington basically is like got second tier in his eyes, mm-hmm. team of all yes men, but a rotating cast. There's mm-hmm. no stability anymore. And these papers are are railing against him. They're criticizing him all the time. Mm-hmm. He makes some missteps again, some early, you know, sort of reminiscent of earlier Washington. And by the time he leaves office, it's again, he's ready. It's not this, it's not like the first, it, mm-hmm. he wants nothing to do with the country ever again, mm-hmm. really. He just wants to go and be left alone because he's really said, Jefferson says he's never, he's never seen anyone so sensitive to criticism. Mm-hmm. And that, that rings true. So when you think about the way it is told, what I think you're getting at is that people leave out the details. They, or they focus on details that don't bring us closer to him. Mm-hmm. And they also, in an attempt to sort of give this this overview, they give you 20 examples of things when you probably only need two. You need one that is in mm-hmm. one direction, one in another, and then mm-hmm. my reader is smart. They can figure out which way they want to go. Mm-hmm. And so that's a big part of it, too. There is a there is a bit of an ego, too, in writing about th- these men is, you know, you want to, it seems, want them. And, and, and you want them to be a hero. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and um, it's funny. I, I was on Mike Pesca's um, podcast, and he said to me, that he had interviewed Ron Chernow, and Ron Chernow said, you know, I, I really, I like Washington, and, you know, I couldn't be with someone for years if I didn't really like them. And it doesn't occur to me to like or dislike my subject because it's a professional relationship, and if, if I was reverent, I couldn't I couldn't really deliver an honest narrative, then it's more of, um, then it, I don't know, it's more of like a, a Fox News founding <laughs> history, which is what they right. are, and those right. are very popular. That's the thing, those exist. Mm-hmm. This book that I wrote didn't exist. Right. Right, the idea. All right, we're here with Alexis Coe, the author of You'll Never Forget Your First, a biography of George Washington. When we get back, we're going to talk about how history is going to go in the future, given we have so much information, and what George Washington really was like, uh, which I think is, it would be interesting to see him in today's era, for example. We'll get back after this. We're here with Alexis Coe, a historian who's written the book You'll Never Forget Your First, a biography of George Washington. We're just talking about Washington, the complexity of Washington, which I think is hard for people. It's easier to be reductive um, and to have theme, thematic things about him, which I think in many cases are largely true. You know, someone there's a reason why one person bonds over other people. It isn't luck or anything else. It's, it's often exceptional, being exceptional in some way. Yeah, and I think the thing that we're struggling to talk about, it's mm-hmm. just a really simple word, and we wouldn't be able to, you know, describe Washington or anyone we met at, you know, a party who's— mm-hmm. he was charismatic, mm-hmm. um, and he was far more charismatic than anyone else to the point where he could just— be silent. Mm-hmm. He was one of those people. Um, he was tall, but you know Jefferson was also tall. Mm-hmm. He did have a commanding body, and it had certainly survived so many diseases. Mm-hmm. But by the time he's president, you know he's um, he's he's you know got a little bit of a belly. Like he's mm-hmm. not he's not quite this like fit athlete earlier mm-hmm. certainly. And I think he must have been really graceful. I think he must have been like someone you watch and you think. He's he's a delight to watch on the mm-hmm. football field, on the tennis court, mm-hmm. whatever it is that mm-hmm. is your sport, mm-hmm. soccer field. He 
I think in an era where everyone was really quick to talk a lot and mm-hmm. share their opinion didn't. Mm-hmm. So he made people uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And people really fought for their opinion. This was unprecedented where they could have a role in shaping their country when they had lived in a monarch that had, was mm-hmm. hundreds of years old. He um, listened. He didn't comment on things that were controversial. You know, our current president tweets a response to, to almost anything. Twitching, twitching. You know? yeah. Washington never publicly mm-hmm. commented mm-hmm. on any of those negative stories that Jefferson said he was so sensitive about. Right. Um, he never criticized other leaders in public. You know, he he sort of, he was stoic in a way. Mm-hmm. And I think that gave him a great amount of appeal. Another uh, unflattering thing, if Jefferson said that part of Washington's gift was that he basically could get away with anything and everyone else around him would be blamed for right. it. He wasn't the first one who said that. Um, mm-hmm. Other people have said this over time. He did abandon people, much like he was sort of negligent to his mother. If you were of use to him and then you weren't, you embarrassed him in some way or you were a liability, he really wanted to be neutral as president. Mm-hmm. It was good for the country. This was true. Then he got rid of you. He just completely iced you out, Mm -hmm. which is why when he left office and when he died, he was basically estranged from everyone, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, Madison, Jefferson, Monroe, uh, except for Lafayette and and Adams, who he wasn't that close with to begin with. Mm -hmm. And I I think that was a huge part of it. Right. So talk about—give me the three things people get wrong about him Mm -hmm. and the three things they get right. Well, you could tell a lie, obviously. Mm -hmm. He was a spy master during the war. Mm -hmm. We were— as Hamilton has made famous, we were outmanned and outgunned. And Washington doesn't get credit for, you know, these other great thinkers who went to school, like, you know, Adams to Harvard, Jefferson to the College of William mm-hmm. and Mary. They get all this credit for the constant, you know, great things. Mm-hmm. But Washington was a great tactician, even if he didn't, he lost more battles than he won. But he figured out how to make up for the fact that, like, we didn't have a navy. We barely had boats. Mm-hmm. The British Navy was the best in the world. Mm-hmm. And some of those things were, he was a spymaster, so he could tell a lie. He um, understood the the court of public opinion. He he was very good at, at figuring out what propaganda was useful and how mm-hmm. to spread it. Um, so that's one thing I think that, or I guess two, that we think of him as, as being more of a military man and not mm-hmm. really a gifted political thinker. Mm-hmm. I, I think that, that again, takes a lot of credit away from him mm-hmm. and maybe we can even things out a little bit more. Right. Um, so I don't want to just, I don't want to like bring him down off this pedestal. I just, I want us to see him more realistically. Complex, right. Yeah. Right. So, um, so I think, you know, he could tell a lie. He was a great military tactician. And then sort of the biggest one is... Um, is this redemption story, right? That there's a lot of um, a lot of anxiety around the founders and around mm-hmm. founding history. You have the defenders who think, you know, they were men of their times. Like you can't cancel them. Mm-hmm. Leave the monuments up. Mm-hmm. You know, they conflate all these things mm-hmm. and want this heroic story because that's the story they want to tell themselves about America. Mm-hmm. And then we have the other class of people who think these were. These were people who owned people. Mm-hmm. They were hypocrites. Mm-hmm. I do not care to think about them or want to live my right, life sort right. of the way Half though. of them, actually. Yeah. Some of them did not. Right. right. Um, and that's significant. Mm-hmm. Um, or changed, you know, if we, so a foil to the story I'm about to tell is Franklin actually lived this redemption story. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't get a lot of—we think of him as an abolitionist, but his personal story is really interesting. Washington, as the story goes, in his will— made the bold move to—I'm using the language of, of the men and also Mount Vernon— where I spent the night, and they've been very supportive of the book, but um, they—and I disagree on this, their framing of it. The bold move to emancipate his slaves in his will Mm -hmm. outright. Outright means right away. Mm -hmm. 
he did not emancipate hundreds of people outright. He emancipated one man Mm -hmm. outright, Billy Lee, who he had always thought of as exceptional. He served him during the war. Mm -hmm. He was an enslaved man who he left crippled in his service Mm -hmm. and then replaced him with a younger man. The rest of the people had to wait for Martha Martha to die. die. So he paved the road. Mm -hmm. I'm not denying that that was important Mm -hmm. and that it wasn't very important to the people who received their freedom. Mm -hmm. Um, However, we cannot celebrate him as that because Mm -hmm. the reason he delayed their freedom was, you know, Billy Lee was crippled. He wasn't much of use, but Martha could use them to keep, um, you know, the plantation going Mm -hmm. after he died. He also knew that she was not, she was not um, inclined to do so. And Mm -hmm. I just have a few quotes in the book Mm -hmm. that speak to this because she was quite racist and Mm -hmm. the language is clear. You don't Mm -hmm. need a lot of examples. Mm -hmm. But what we know is what happened in the next year. Um, Martha was afraid for her life. She Mm -hmm. was afraid that they were going to murder her in the middle of the night because Washington... While I think he did mean to do this, he Mm -hmm. did mean to emancipate them, Mm -hmm. we can't ignore the fact that it looked good for his legacy, that the world was changing, that Lafayette had been writing to him for decades, proposing different schemes, and he had said, oh, that's a good idea, I just can't right now, and like, let's— To to free them. Yeah, yeah, like, uh, you know, America's going to handle it, they're going to do it gradually, almost—they use—they love this word, imperceptible, which is— if I may, bullshit. Mm -hmm. And Martha's not going to do this. So basically, she fears for her life, so she does uh, a year after Washington dies. Um, She, of course, doesn't do that with her own enslaved people. Um, Some because she can't. They belong to her first husband's estate and others because she chooses not to. And what happens again is Washington as vaunted as he's held up as not only emancipating his slaves, but, you know, he couldn't um, stand to see them separated from their families. And that's why, you know, that was part of the reason he didn't quite know how to Mm -hmm. go about it during his Mm -hmm. life. He knew that they were going to be separated from Mm -hmm. their families because his slaves had married Martha's slaves. So he was just putting it off. So the idea that Mm -hmm. he didn't know that was coming is, again, not true. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that this is incredible, but, like, let's add some context to this. That they didn't get. But they need to. They need him to be this hero, and there's so much anxiety around this story of him. And um, you know, and they're worried. The thing is, Mo- Monticello is the gold standard for mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. They have completely, over the course of decades, shifted. Shifted. Every, you cannot go on Monticello's website without seeing Sally Hemings somewhere. Their page devoted to it. It's every single Tells nation. the truth. Oh, yeah, but it's incredible. Every mm-hmm. sort of—any way that you could push back, they um, they they address. Because they've heard it all before, and this is true with—I with, can tell mm-hmm. you I've heard it over the last month on Book Tour. Mount Vernon has certainly heard it. So they prepare for everywhere. But also Monticello, I think um, that, that attendance have, has skyrocketed. Yeah. Yeah, and they have changed everything about the tour. I think, you know, the last time I was there, I I was greeted by by Sally Hemings. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was incredible. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is anxiety around About telling the truth, around the idea that he's more complex. Yeah. Simple is good for Washington. Jefferson complex is okay. Well, but but right. but also not right. Mm-hmm. There is still um, or has become okay. 
the the I, this book has been really well received, but the few times that mm-hmm. um, there has been something negative, it's almost always on a website where they um, refer to me as pro LGBTQ, <laughs> um, and then they also reference Annette Gordon Reed mm-hmm. and basically roll their eyes at that story because mm-hmm. there's still a tremendous there's still a lot of people who disagree with that, mm-hmm. and um, they call her a quadroon. Mm-hmm. Which is explain the that for people a who don't quadroon. know this. No, and I know it. Explain yeah. quadroon and her herself. So, so Sally Hemings was um, probably related, very likely related, to uh, Washington's wife's sister mm-hmm. um, because you know she comes from generations of, mm-hmm. of enslaved women who were raped. This mm-hmm. is this is a story that is America's story. Mm-hmm. This was quite common. And as a result, she is not fully black. She mm-hmm. has some white br- blood. And so a really a, a way that it was referred to was um, quadroon, which nobody uses anymore. Mm-hmm. The same way you're not supposed to use concubine addressed mm-hmm. on Monticello's page. Mm-hmm. And they call concubine. Concubine makes it seem like this was some sort of consensual relationship. Yeah, exotic, yeah, yeah and that's not what happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting. There is some pushback. I wouldn't say that these stories are accepted with, with Jefferson. I think that's mm-hmm. the great fear. Mm-hmm. Washington does not have the same people Coming to his estate, mm-hmm. um, you know Jefferson has lover of words. Mm-hmm. His um, idealist, at least, did. Um, there are people who struggle with his story. He was mm-hmm. a great innovator. Washington doesn't have those other sort of right. things going for him, let's mm-hmm. say. And so the people who are coming for him are like military oriented. Do sort of think in this perfect um, that he was the ideal. You know, we we don't know if he raped his slaves because he was sterile. Mm-hmm. So you know that is possible. We do know that his. Um, his step-grandson, who he raised from mm-hmm. the time he was very young until Washington's death, um, who claimed, you know, Washington as his father. I mean, he, he so micromanaged a washi. What's his name? He was named after Washington. That, like, Washington is lecturing washi about losing his umbrella. Mm-hmm. That's how, like, close of a parent he was. Mm-hmm. Um, washi raped a lot of enslaved people. We know that that he has heirs. You cannot find that on the Mount Vernon website. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think there is so much anxiety around his legacy, um, and I don't necessarily get that. What would be, you know, just think about these leaders today. Think about the idea of them today in today's world. Um, so much information about everybody. Very little is hidden. Mm-hmm. It's very transparent. In the case of someone like Donald Trump, it doesn't seem to matter. You can tell story after horrible story, and people seem to—I think he's correct. He could walk down Fifth Avenue and shoot someone. It doesn't matter. What would these—all the founding fathers, but the the um, especially Washington, how would he be—is there a fear of doing it because we know way too much about everybody and we don't want the actual truth? We'd like a sort of prettier version of it that's relatively truthful, but— not quite on point. I think that's why we struggle so much. Yeah. I think because we have— It's like, oh, no, not him, too. Like, well, but also— Because we've we never been, examined him in the first place. We've been served a beautiful plate mm-hmm. of, um, you know, this. Is, the founding history is, is all, like, gorgeous and appetizing, right? Mm-hmm. It was right. a civil war. Right. Like, half the country didn't want it. There were mm-hmm. people called loyalists we, mm-hmm. we yeah. regularly don't teach— um, Franklin's son. Yeah. What a story that is. Oh, my God, is. a heartbreaking I'm waiting for that movie. Son. I know, right? Me too. Me too. Well, that should I've be often nice. thought about that it. That would be a great— That relations, those letters, I remember uh, the, the, that whole struggle. It's incredible. And everyone had these relationships. Washington's mm-hmm. sort of first crush, a mm-hmm. similar story. She lost everything. Because if you were a loyalist, a loyalist after the war, everything got taken away mm-hmm. um, if you tried to stay in America. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I think that if we managed to— 
hold two things at once the way we do about a relation we have to deal with or, mm-hmm. you know, a partner we love or something. The way that we are able to, to sort of hold these complexities, even when they're awful, we would have a much better understanding of why our country looks the way it does, why Ferguson happens, why mm-hmm. a meeting about uh, the coronavirus is a, a, a whole room full of white men. Mm-hmm. We would have a better time talking about these things mm-hmm. If we understood the real story mm-hmm. and also dealing with the reality rather than um, either, you know, going to the extreme of being super defensive or thinking, mm-hmm. you know, this whole system is totally screwed. However, the founders, the re- as I said before, they were reluctant, right? These were businessmen. Mm-hmm. They weren't the people we think sort of starting revolutions. They weren't Thomas Paine. They needed Thomas Paine to, to use those words, to make, you know, to, mm-hmm. to get everyone riled up. But their greatest fear for America— for this infant nation, as they called it, was that it would devolve into corruption and decay and that mm-hmm. unprincipled men who only cared about maintaining power um, and, and as a result were completely loyal to their party rather than mm-hmm. citizens and trying to get things done for the people, that it would be the downfall of America. And mm-hmm. that essentially we would become just like any other empire, mm-hmm. like the British. Uh, and I think that um, if we actually listen to them instead of sort of generally being like, the founders believe this, mm-hmm. the founders believe that, we'd be really upset about what was going on right now mm-hmm. as patriots. Mm-hmm. The right to sort of claim patriotism, the most patriotic, I mean, this is, we're near the ACLU's headquarters, mm-hmm. like their dissent is patriotic as one of their standby mm-hmm. <laughs> slogans in their, in their um, it's true. Mm-hmm. It absolutely true. It's fundamental. And if we understood that um, and, and we taught civics, I think also I do think there's um, not only I, I don't think people are interested in that. And I think that this book has, has like proven that. I think mm-hmm. people are interested. In, we don't teach it. We don't teach civics. Mm-hmm. We don't have this sort of community outreach. We don't get people involved in founding history. And then when we tell them about it, it's, you know, a chapter in elementary school. Yeah, I think it is written in this way that's very pretty. And it does, yeah. and then when the reality comes in, it's upsetting because you don't want to see the reality, even if it's real. And I don't think yeah. people are against the realness. I'll never forget a book I had when I was a kid about John Kennedy, and it was such a whitewash of what yeah. he was. You know, what a complicated person. He was good and bad, and a lot of bad, by the way, a lot yeah. of fuck-ups, you know. Especially in his youth. Yeah, exactly. Like, it goes on and on. This yeah. guy had, like— but I remember being initially angry when I started seeing the first news of perhaps he wasn't as beautiful because that book had formed me so yeah like he was beautiful like what are you yeah. talking what are you doing to this beautiful image I have of thing and I think Washington of all of them certainly his good qualities outweigh the bad ones rather significantly I think in terms of people's feelings but at the same time the inability to understand the complexity not just of the time and place which slavery existed then and and people held people in in um, in slavery but that it you can't see it together because it does you either have to hate him or love him that kind of thing but we sure because it's jarring right mm-hmm. whenever you hear new information that shakes your worldview about someone you know about someone you thought you knew mm-hmm. um, living or dead it, it's destabilizing mm-hmm. but these things are different critical thinking and cynical thinking are different. Mm -hmm. If we were taught to think critically about Washington, we would do things like, um, we would say, oh yeah, we all know he doesn't have wooden teeth. We would ask what they were made of. Mm -hmm. And we would also be told what what they were made of. I have um, a baby, and so I was in the the children's section of Mm -hmm. the the Brooklyn Public Library, and Mm -hmm. I was looking at a book on presidents 
because I had never had the occasion to go in this section before. Mm-hmm. And um, there was this this book, 2019, was printed about Washington, and it said, you know, what do you think his teeth were made of? And it named the things. It didn't name enslaved people that that he had paid them under market value for their teeth. Um, and there are books that are really frank in this way that talk yeah. about slavery and, and Martin Luther King. So children can handle it, and they do care about these mm-hmm. things. Um, but we don't tell them this about mm-hmm. Washington. And I think a part of it, to be honest, is that in building him up to be um, perfect, we have made him too perfect to care about. Mm-hmm. You know, he's it, Richard Brookheiser has, has sort of famously said he's in our our pockets, but he's not in our hearts. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a big part of it. Mm -hmm. We just don't think about him unless Mm -hmm. we're told, you know, it's it's Washington. Well, President's Day is now Washington. It used to be Washington's birthday. Now it's Mm -hmm. a general day. Mm -hmm. The Washington Monument is this like weird phallic stone Mm -hmm. thing. It doesn't move you the way Jefferson's Monument does or Lincoln's. Mm -hmm. They're actual people. So which Van Gogh did is the most realistic? Probably Jefferson, if you had to. And now Hamilton in a weird way. Yeah. You do get a complex portrait of him, even though it's been musicalized. You do get a much different— Yeah, I mean, just like uh, a lot of historians have problems with 1619, um, but enjoy it. A lot of historians have problems with Hamilton, but enjoy it. Mm -hmm. Um, So the problem with Hamilton is by casting people of color, you don't see that there aren't many people of color. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And you don't deal with slavery, and you Mm -hmm. you sort of get a pass from a lot of things, Mm -hmm. um, which is difficult. Not a slave owner, correct? Not— Hamilton? Yeah. No. 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 Um, Certainly grew up with it around him. But, yeah, I mean, Hamilton, you can say, there's the Reynolds affair there. You Mm -hmm. know, he had an affair. There are plenty of other things. But it's out there. Yeah, and he was, you know, sort of an arrogant prick. Yeah, yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. Um, Really, really annoying. Um, But we have a realistic view of him, and Mm -hmm. we can sort of delight in his complexity. It's harder Mm -hmm. to do when there are enslaved people. That's the Um, favor we've gotten from all this, is that you do get a complex person. Yeah, you know, yeah, not a, not a hero, not a non-hero, but kind of a hero, but in a different way. You get to see his flaws, which is really hard. So I want yeah. to end on that, the idea of seeing too many flaws. Yeah. You know, now, it, as you're talking about, you either see, you know, whether it's the debates about uh, Confederate statues, mm-hmm. you know, you see the point of yeah. what we've done here is that we've now know too much. Yeah. Um, and then what do you do? It sort of leaves you paralyzed that you have to either go all in one way or all in the other. I, I think we ha- I, I first want to say that I think we need to do something about civic ed- education. Right. And that if we don't have to have these basic arguments with people about mm-hmm. whether, you know, if, if, you pro- if you gave your enslaved population a blanket and food, isn't that being benevolent? Mm-hmm. You know, can you really say they were that bad? If we don't have to have those really fundamental, frustrating, um, emotional conversations, mm-hmm. then I think we can get much farther in it and we can deal with these things. Um, the problem is when we have a conversation about like monuments of um, General Davis, you know, the the, mm-hmm. the Confederate president, the problem is people get so emotional mm-hmm. and they don't, they can't consider the details, which is, okay, we should talk about Confederate history clearly. Um, no one ever goes without knowledge because of, like in in school, we do, historians don't study monuments. They mm-hmm. offer you like four lines. They're mm-hmm. not important. We And if we could talk about why they were erected, mm-hmm. if they were erected, erected, for example, during Jim Crow and they were put in areas that were populated by black people in order to remind, remind them, them of things, right. then that is probably a thing that shouldn't be there. Mm-hmm. It does not mean that we shouldn't know who Davis was, that mm-hmm. we shouldn't you right. know, say he was in fact a general. He was mm-hmm. this, he was that, you know, mm-hmm. or he was president. Right. Like we should do that. Um, 
but it's too emotional because we are still arguing about the basic things. Mm -hmm. You know, we're still arguing about Sally Hemings when DNA evidence has been established. Mm -hmm. And that's because we've let it go too long. Finishing up, we have just uh, two more minutes. What should people do to become more civically minded in terms of, and what what is what are what does history have to do continue telling the truth or what is the role that that has to play um you know i think that we do need to read more history and and watch more history and and we have to be careful about the sources that we get it from you know now McCullough is sort of generally understood to be like a little bit racist and Mm -hmm. um i think we can all make david mccullough yeah david mccullough i think that we can um you know think like okay am i looking for a woman of color um, or or you know is this someone who's really well known for being even handed like eric foner on on reconstruction he's Mm -hmm. he writes beautifully um and you know people don't really talk about reconstruction i think Mm -hmm. we can focus on these very important very important important and fundamental, but they're very interested in the Civil War. We don't talk about the Mexican-American War. So basically, find the knowledge, be open to it being different than what you thought about. And that is sort of what I tried to imply in in the title of the book. It was a joke meant to both invite readers and to sort of put them at ease Mm -hmm. about this serious topic that either they are nervous about or they feel is overwhelming or they're not interested in. Mm -hmm. And just remember that we have a good amount of nostalgia in this country. Mm-hmm. And just like anything else, something that we learned 20 years ago when we hear about it now might seem a little bit different. Yeah, yeah. and I think it's also understanding the person, being empathetic towards people. Because yeah. someone the other day was saying something to me about, oh, remember how good it was? I'm like, it wasn't good for me. No. And I said that. It was about marriage. Like, remember how easy marriage was? I'm like, mm, no, I don't. Because it was really, it was about gay issues. Yeah. It was really interesting. And I thought, wow, they don't. They actually don't. So why don't they? Like, that's, yeah, the, that's the, what. Yeah. The most common question I've asked is, you know, as a historian, is there any other era I would like to live in? And I think I'm a woman. Right. No. <laughs> I barely want to live right now. <laughs> is, <laughs> is there, though? No. No. I no, agree. Absolutely no. not. No. I mean, th- I mean, maybe a few years ago yeah. <laughs> when I didn't have to lear- you know, worry about certain rights and I saw right. the signs of progress. I right. saw a woman in the world. I mean, later we learned that the woman in Obama's administration were still like, co- you know, in cahoots to try to get a word in. But mm-hmm. I mean, like, th- there seems like there's progress and now there's a giant step back. Right. Um, but no, I'm, I'm, I'm holding on to the present with dear life, personally speaking. All right, I'm going to ask one final question, a very reductive question that is, you're not going to be able to answer very easily, but you're going to have to. Is the internet and all the information good for historians in the future or bad? Mm-hmm. Or something in the between? Luckily, not my problem. <laughs> You'll be dead. I'll be dead. People say, you know, do you want to write a book on Trump? Absolutely not. Right. Um, I think that it is an overwhelming amount of material, and and we're going to have to. But I would assume that people will be able to figure out certain ways to utilize programs to sort of sort through information. Mm-hmm. You know, there will be certain keywords in Trump's. I'm not sure, but it's one of these things. Do we need every example of of Trump being petty, mm-hmm. um, every example of him lashing out, or do we just need, like, the top three? Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably true. And what's your next book? I'm I'm not talking about it yet because I'm still sort of figuring it out. How about a woman? Um, well, I might alternate. Yeah. I might go back and forth. They're, the books seem disparate, but they're not. It's mm-hmm. all political history, and these are people who were um, at the center of really interesting stories that also mm-hmm. tell us about their time period. How about Lafayette? 
Lafayette, there's been a lot of good books. Yeah. Also, I don't speak French. I'm oh, an American yeah. historian. Yes, that's right. All right. Okay. Yeah. I'll try to think of some for you. I oh, really appreciate you. it, uh, Alexis. This has uh, been great. I really love talking about history all the time. Anyway, thank you for coming on the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Erica Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Alexis, where can people find you online? They can find me at Alexis Co on Twitter um, or AlexisCo.com. You never forget your first. A biography of George Washington is for sale almost everywhere. Okay. If you like this episode, we really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice or tap the link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Friday. Tune in then.